Welcome to the second episode of Let's Get Bored. Humans cannot escape boredom. Even gods cannot escape boredom, says Nietzsche. In the time of Corona, the experience of this phenomenon has become even more universal. We can talk about a democratization of boredom because we are globally at home and eventually we will find ourselves captured in this momentary emptiness. What is the best way to deal with boredom? How do we endure this empty time? My answer is to reflect upon it, to think about our boredom. In order to be able to philosophize about this feeling, first we should try to understand it. So, in this episode, we will look at different philosophical perspectives on boredom. Many questions posed by great minds have dwelled upon this temporary hollowness of the human soul. What are the limits of the human capacity for boredom? Could being bored be immoral? Can we use this feeling as a means to a better end? Can we learn something from this feeling? In the first episode, we talked about the nature, history and different typologies of boredom. There is a wide range of literature on the etiology of the phenomenon and on its kinship to other feelings, such as the ancient concept of asadia defined by Lars Wenden, the author of Philosophy of Boredom, as pre-modern boredom. Here, I would like to briefly explore the philosophical understanding of boredom as we know it. I'll begin with the 17th century French mathematician, physicist and theologian Pascal, who is considered the most eminent early theoretician of boredom. Pascal thinks boredom is the natural state of human beings when they are left to themselves. Man finds nothing so intolerable as to be in a state of complete rest, without passions, without occupation, without diversion, without effort. Then he faces his nullity, loneliness, inadequacy, dependence, helplessness, emptiness. And at once there wells up from the depths of his soul boredom, gloom, depression, chagrin, resentment, despair. What a beautiful description of the existential vacuum. Life is a boring nothingness without meaning. But where is this meaning? For Pascal, the answer is God. Without God, humans are doomed to boredom. Pascal believes that all problems of humanity have their origins in this feeling. He says all problems derive from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. You see, unlike many other philosophers we shall discuss, He is not blaming boredom itself, rather he is pointing out man's inability to cope with this feeling. I think the time we are passing through is very important. We should see it as an opportunity to overcome the inability that Pascal claims. In our homes, without any distraction, by which I mean the virtual world, we should let ourselves be with our own selves and let ourselves bore into the deepest corners of our soul in order to become familiar with ourselves, which may hopefully teach us to stay peacefully alone in a room. Perhaps our boredom is not that bad. On the other hand, Schopenhauer says no, it is bad. He describes boredom as nothing other than the sensation of the emptiness of existence. 
reflecting only on its evil side. We want something, we follow it, we suffer for it, and then if we're lucky, we seize it. But it does not give us the pleasure we thought it would give. Instead, we reach for the doors of boredom until we find ourselves in another pursuit. Neither the state of want nor the state of boredom is good for us. He says human life oscillates like a pendulum between two evil states, the state of pain or the state of want and the state of boredom, which is the state of lack of want. They are life's ultimate components, according to Schopenhauer. Just as pessimistic as Schopenhauer, his contemporary fellow philosopher Kierkegaard also seizes the dark side of the phenomenon, depicting boredom as the root of all evil. He goes further than Schopenhauer, claiming that boredom bears an ethical link to violence. As Cheshire Kalun, professor of philosophy at Arizona State University, puts it, normative delinquencies as gambling, crime, social conflict, overeating, drug abuse, horseplay, gossiping, doodling and daydreaming occur in the state of boredom because boredom often motivates us to engage in meaningless diversions. Though I must say, I don't particularly see doodling or daydreaming as quite so meaningless as gambling or gossiping. According to English theologian George Patterson, Kierkegaard's association of violence with boredom is far from accidental. He argues that the line of causation the philosopher draws between boredom and violence does not run from boredom to violence, but from violence to boredom. For Kierkegaard, if one is bored, or if a whole society is bored, Patterson argues it means their boredom is already motivated by violent tendencies towards the world. This argument leads us to an important question. Does that mean being bored is immoral? Although Kierkegaard reflects on the evil side of boredom, he also accepts the triggering potential of it. He finds the effects of boredom absolutely magical. Although the feeling has such calm and sedate nature, he says, it could have such capacity to initiate motion. What does this mean? It means boredom could be used as momentum. As Nietzsche claims, boredom is an unpleasant calm that precedes creative acts. Creativity happens in times of boredom, perhaps because boredom allows minds to be idle, to roam openly and without restrictions, and thus to create free associations, which opens the gates of creativity. There is scientific evidence justifying the link between boredom and creative acts. In the study called Does Being Bored Make Us More Creative, conducted in 2012 at the University of Central Lancashire by Sandy Mann and Rebecca Catman, it is argued that boredom actually stimulates us to create. The study also confirms the role of daydreaming as a mediator between boredom and creativity. So, if you are bored and determined to use your boredom to be productive, let me tell you about some historical role models who have turned their boredom into creative acts during various lockdowns. During the bubonic plague in the 1340s, Florentine writer Giovanni Boccaccio created the Cameron while he was in quarantine inside his Tuscan villa. 
The theatre historian James Shapiro claims that Shakespeare wrote King Lear, Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra while in plague lockdowns. Another 17th century plague survivor, Isaac Newton, discovered gravity during self-quarantine on his family estate. Norwegian painter Edward Munch created many paintings during the Spanish flu pandemic, also contracted the illness in 1919. These are only some examples of individuals who used boredom as a catalyst to achieve something greater than themselves. Let's continue with another philosopher. Heidegger contributes to the subject from a different perspective, using a phenomenological grounding and suggesting that we could learn from this feeling. If we see an educational quality in the experience of boredom as Heidegger does, we can enlighten ourselves. Jan-Erik Mansika, a professor in the Department of Education at University of Helsinki, suggests that if we hold a Heideggerian approach towards our boredom and see its transformative potentialities, we can brighten our cultural situation. As Paul Gibbs, a professor in the Department of Education at Middlesex University, says, in order to liberate our authentic appreciation of the world around us, we should analyze the structure of our boredom, examine the very cause of it, because it is the only way to deal with this idle state. But humans are adept at finding ways to escape from boredom, rather than enduring it to heighten their existence in a Heideggerian sense. In Heideggerian terms, being held in limbo or being left empty is beyond toleration for most people, which is why people try to avoid boredom. Until now, we have talked about boredom as represented in Western philosophy. Now, I would like to address some perspectives from the Eastern world as well. Contrary to many Western traditions, Boredom is well embraced in the East. The understanding of this feeling is much more positive because Eastern traditions acknowledge self-realization or self-knowledge, which is only possible through self-exploration and meditation. Similar to a Heideggerian approach, Eastern traditions encourage boredom. Victor Vichiega, a professor at University of Guelph in Canada, claims that boredom is the way the self meditates even before proceeding with a reflective intellectual effort. Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh, author of The Miracle of Mindfulness, goes even further and recommends adding the word meditation at the end of all boring activities. For example, if you find waiting for your favorite theater company's online premiere boring, he says you should call the activity waiting for the online premiere meditation, to simply shift your mindset. Robert Persick, in his classic Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, also discusses the link between boredom and Zen through meditation. Zen has something to say about boredom. Its main practice of just sitting has got to be the world's most boring activity. You don't do anything much, not move not think, not care. What could be more boring? Yet in the very center of this boredom is the very thing Zen Buddhism seeks to teach. What is it? What is it at the very center of boredom?
that you are not seeing. For the last decade, with the acceleration of discourses on mindfulness, the appearance of meditation in academia increased. In his research, Dr. Tim Lomas, a lecturer at the University of East London, explored boredom through a case study involving introspective phenomenology. The results show that the state of boredom holds three fundamental sources of value, altered perception of time, awakened curiosity about the environment, and exploration of the self. I genuinely hope that you will get bored today and treat your boredom as a guide to learn how to be alone with yourself or as an overture to creativity or a prelude to self-exploration. In the next episode, we will look at different works of art depicting boredom. Thank you for listening.